This is America's WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Good evening. Welcome to Psychiatry Today. This is Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio and your source for all the latest mental health-related news. Anything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to make sense of media reports on research into the latest potential new treatments and causes of mental illness, this is where you'll hear about it first without the hype and distortion of other media sources and with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry, along the way trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it. And welcome back to the show. This is the Wednesday, February 26, 2014 edition of Psychiatry Today, <clears throat> the last show in February. Wow, the, the year is kind of moving along already, isn't it? And uh, as always, I welcome your questions, your comments, your feedback about previous shows, your suggestions for future topics. And uh, the way to get in touch with me with all those questions or feedback is via email. And the email address for me is Dr. Scott, that's spelled D-R-S-C-O-T, at RadioSandySprings.com. That's R-A-D-I-O-S-A-N-D-Y-S-P-R-I-N-G-S.com. Don't be afraid to send me even your most personal mental health-related questions. I assure you that when I read questions on the air, uh, I will not let on any identifying information and give you my answer, usually by the following week's show. Now, I have often talked about for years on the show, and longtime listeners will be familiar with this, that it's one of my goals to debunk and demystify and uh, explode myths when it comes to mental health. <clears throat> and also to show you that media reports about medical research can often be so misleading and can lead to scary uh, conclusions about health issues, including mental health issues, and can really distort the picture. And sometimes it's the media's fault. Sometimes it's researchers' fault. But in any case, one of these just came up. Uh, and I just thought, wow, you know, I've got to talk about this because it's really going to scare and upset a lot of people. And uh, I you know, hope those of you who heard about this and were concerned about it will be hearing what I have to say about it. It's this report that taking Tylenol during pregnancy is linked to a higher risk of having a kid with ADHD or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Now, what I'm going to do is go over two articles with you. The first article is the one about this research study. And the second one is an editorial written by a physician uh, who uh, has a different, interesting take on the publications about this research. Now, first of all, the article about the research itself. Pregnancy already being a time uh, that's you know, fraught with anxiety for expectant mothers, more research shows how quickly the foods that women eat, the air they breathe, 
and the compounds to which they are exposed can traverse the placenta and affect their growing child. Now, here's another thing to add to the growing list of agents, including tobacco from cigarettes, whether that's first-hand smoking or second-hand smoke, mercury from eating the wrong kind of fish, and alcohol that may affect their baby's development. Now, the study was published in the uh, Journal of the AMA Pediatrics. So this is not some fly-by-night medical publication. This is a very well-respected, scholarly journal, peer-reviewed. Also, it was done by an international group of researchers, and it was done in Denmark. It found a strong correlation between acetaminophen, this is the chemical name for Tylenol, the use of that chemical among pregnant women, and the rate of ADHD diagnoses and also prescriptions for ADHD medications in their children. Overall, moms who used the pain reliever to treat things like headaches or to reduce fevers saw a 37% increased risk in their kids receiving an ADHD diagnosis and a 29% increased risk in the chances that their kids needed ADHD medications compared with moms who didn't use the over-the-counter medication at all. Even after the team apparently accounted for factors that could explain the connection, like why the mom needed to take the drug in the first place, the link remained strong, suggesting that there is something specific about the drug and how it affects fetal development that might explain the higher risk of behavioral issues. The findings are especially troubling if they can be taken literally, since more than half of the 64,322 women in the study reported using acetaminophen in the three months prior to the survey. The participants included mothers uh, and single children born in Denmark between 1996 and 2002 and registered in the Danish National Birth Cohort. If you didn't already know this, Scandinavian countries have exquisite birth registries and it's very easy to do medical research with large groups of subjects because such a wealth of data is readily available. Now, this group included a diverse group of mothers from different social and environmental backgrounds. The study also evaluated hyperactivity on three different levels, from symptom reports by mothers or caregivers, hospital diagnoses, and prescriptions to treat ADHD. Apparently, higher acetaminophen use among mothers was linked to higher rates of all three outcomes in their children. Previous studies have raised concerns about acetaminophen. Both animal and human studies showed that the drug can interfere with hormone systems, so prenatal exposure may adversely affect development of the brain. The latest investigations from 
the neuroscientists studying developmental and behavioral disorders like autism and ADHD suggest that the problems in the connection between different brain regions may contribute to the symptoms of these conditions and hormone disruptions uh, during pregnancy triggered by acetaminophen may unbalance the brain enough to make certain children more vulnerable to autism or hyperactivity later in life. The results are likely to launch waves of questions about how safe the drug is for pregnant women to take. The findings only suggest an association and do not establish that acetaminophen causes ADHD. That according to an editorial that accompanied publication of the study. Clearly, more studies are needed using different sets of data to confirm and replicate what researchers found. And if more studies verify the potential harms on developing brains, it might also fall to regulatory agencies like the Food and Drug Administration to rethink the label that is the safety data on acetaminophen and warn users to avoid the medication during pregnancy. All right, so there you have it. There's the article about the research. Um, a publication, like I said, in a respected scholarly journal with an association, not a definite cause-effect relationship, an association between women taking Tylenol during pregnancy and that increasing the risk of their kids having ADHD. Uh, in this case, I would have to say the media reporting on the research was not too terribly over the top and not too distorted. So really the message that is scary but um, may not be completely accurate is coming straight from medical research. Now, I'm going to read you this other article. This is by a physician who uh, regularly reviews uh, medical literature, uh, and this is their take on this study. <clears throat> Denmark is famous in epidemiological circles for its remarkable long-term studies of large populations followed for development of a wide array of conditions and diseases. So it's no wonder the investigators' conclusions are causing serious pause. As part of the study, the moms had provided information several times during and after the pregnancy regarding their consumption of Tylenol. About half of the mothers reported use, showing that its reputation as a quote-unquote safe drug has led to near-runaway consumption. Using high-end statistical analysis, the researchers were able to demonstrate a small but real increase in ADHD diagnoses by age 7 among those whose mothers had consumed Tylenol versus those whose mothers had not. More compellingly, the more and the earlier the mom took Tylenol, the stronger the association. Well, uh, according to this uh, editorialist, the issue is far from all settled, not even close. There are countless other potential causes 
of ADHD out there, cause in quotes, meaning associations with other risk factors. Some are comparably compelling, others less so. For example, let's list some of them. Lead exposure, mercury exposure, too much sugar, food additives and other chemicals like dyes in the food, too much TV, too much video games, head trauma, adverse parenting, and many, many others. And of course, there's genetics. Among identical twins, there's an extremely high concordance rate for ADHD, meaning if one has ADHD, the other twin has at least a 75% chance of receiving the diagnosis too. All right, well, we're going to take a commercial break here. We'll finish up our thoughts about this publication, about this startling association between Tylenol and ADHD. Be right back after this break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is Michael Gano with Insight to Israel. Every day, the Israeli Defense Force finds itself on the front line of the war with the militant arm of Islam. Surrounded by enemies from within and without, they fight for the only Jewish state. Military service is mandatory, ladies serving two years and men serving three right out of high school. While young people in other democracies are busy traveling or attending university, Israeli men and women gear up for basic training. In a world of heads of state, politicians, ambassadors, diplomats, and a leftist media, many times our voice at the grassroots level is drowned out. So we started an ongoing project called Hershey's for Heroes. Patriot conservatives from all over the U.S. are sending Hershey's chocolate bars with a note of thanks for defending Israel. Won't you join us by sending a sweet message to the IDF? For information, please see my Facebook page at Michael Gano. Thank you, God bless Patriot conservatives, and God bless Israel in her struggle for sovereignty and security. Chemtrails. AmericasWebRadio.com is interested in learning more about what they are, where they are witnessed, and we want to talk to knowledgeable witnesses and experts that can explain what is going on with these chemtrails. Please email gm at americaswebradio.com and we'll set up a time to talk. Thank you. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like. With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on americaswebradio.com. This is americaswebradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio, and we're talking about startling new research findings linking pregnant women's use of Tylenol with an increased rate of having kids with ADHD. Now, right before the break, we were talking about an, an editorialist who was commenting on the merits of the findings of the study. And he points out that in an accompanying editorial to this research that was, again, done by uh, some Danish scientists, a group of Welsh psychologists and neurologists applauded the finding but preached caution as well. An association, as we all know, is not the same as cause and effect. 
which leaves us about where we started, in need of even more clear and less confounded studies of this extremely important public health problem. But these and so many studies like them sidestep the larger issue that looms any time people set out to find the cause of a potentially devastating problem like ADHD. What is the effect of this type of news on the parents and families and children? How many mothers, exasperated by the day-to-day life of trying to support their child with ADHD, went to bed calmly last night, but will sleep poorly this evening as the implicit blame, you took too much Tylenol, it's your fault, seeps in. And behind the sleepless moms will come binders full of freshly scrubbed lawyers looking to turn a buck on the news. And you can just about hear and see the infomercials on TV now. Epidemiologic research often fares very poorly when it leaves the lecture hall or the dusty medical journal and finds the fast lane of public discourse through the press. Subtleties of study design and interpretation are pulverized in the name of the soundbite. The far more disturbing aspect is the sneering tone of accusation that can creep into the latest revelation. When it boils down to too much alcohol or tobacco or cocaine, of course, no one would feel too bad about the news. But increasingly, as epidemiologic study dig deeper into ever larger data sets, a disturbing surprise awaits investigator and public alike. It is uncertain at best whether taking acetaminophen in any way causes ADHD, and likely it will be years until the truth is known. But immediately pregnant mothers everywhere will start to avoid acetaminophen as if it were poison, hoping to influence the fates a little bit. Medicine, which has tried in the last decades to consider how best to disclose specific clinical information to a specific patient would do well to consider the deleterious impact on public sanity brought about by releasing preliminary studies connecting common exposures to medical conditions. In this instance, the causal link between half-baked information and parental angst would not be difficult to demonstrate. Now, you can tell by the language in that editorial, it's, it's somewhat over the top, but I have to say, I think I agree with the main point, even though the language obviously is a bit strong, in that this is so overblown and it's going to create a lot of fear and, as he says, angst. <clears throat> uh, I think it's far too soon to put much credence in these findings and say that Uh, Women who take Tylenol during pregnancy are going to wind up unknowingly and unwittingly increasing the risk that their kid's going to have ADHD until much more specific uh, findings uh, that that replicate this initial report. 
so bottom line, I mean, obviously, <clears throat> it would be ideal and safe and best for all fetuses to have had no chemical exposures whatsoever. But that just isn't realistic in the world that we live in. And to expect pregnant women uh, to just avoid ingesting anything and everything uh, and to suffer uh, through whatever medical condition they have is likewise not realistic. Um, at some point, uh, you have to just decide that the mother's being in good health and not being in a great deal of pain or distress has to have precedence over these associations that um, are not proven to be directly cause and effect. When you consider <clears throat> that women with far more complex physical problems, medical conditions, uh, have to take medications that are far more toxic and successfully carry pregnancies to term and give birth to healthy children, uh, I really think it puts in perspective this study. For example, women with epilepsy, women with diabetes, and so on. Uh, you know, so really, I, I, I think too much is being made of this. Uh, but again, stay tuned in case there hopefully will be follow-up studies to shed some more light on this issue. <clears throat> and lastly, I just want to make the point this is a perfect example of how reports in the media about medical research can be blown out of proportion and how it's very important, as the editorialist says, to look beyond the soundbite and really uh, take an objective look at the findings and what they really mean or not, rather than jump to conclusions as uh, the media would have us do. All right, let's move on to our next topic on tonight's show. Dreams, sleep and dreaming. This is a subject that has fascinated us uh, for millennia, let's face it. And it remains one of the great mysteries of the human mind. Uh, so I saw a couple of very interesting articles about remembering dreams. And uh, this is something that is indeed one of the great mysteries about dreams themselves, that, you know, whether we remember them or not, why some people remember them better or not, why we forget them so quickly, how can we remember them better? So if this is a subject that has ever interested you, then uh, take a listen to these next couple of articles we're going to go over. First of all, if you often recall your dreams, it means your brain might be more active. People who often remember their dreams have high levels of activity in certain areas of the brain, in any case. Researchers conducted brain scans on 41 people while they were awake and while they slept. Now, 21 of them remembered their dreams an average of about five mornings per week. Those were called high dream recallers and 20 remembered their dreams only an average of about two mornings per month. These were called low dream recallers. When asleep and awake, the high dream recallers <clears throat> showed higher levels of activity 
in the brain's medial prefrontal cortex and temporal parietal junction. These are uh, an information processing hub. Now, uh, for those of you who are interested in more in the study, it was published February 19th in the journal Neuropsychopharmacology. Previous research by the same team at the Lyon Neuroscience Research Center in France found that high dream recallers have twice as many periods of wakefulness during the night and that their brains react more to sounds while they're sleeping and awake compared to low dream recallers. The increased brain activity in high dream recallers may cause them to wake up more often during sleep and thereby improve their re recollection of dreams. The sleeping brain is not capable of memorizing new information. It needs to awaken to be able to do that. The researchers also said that high dream recallers may have more dreams than low recallers and therefore more dreams to remember. Well, somewhat interesting, but not exactly a startling revelation. After all, it is already well known that <clears throat> we only tend to remember the dreams that we're having when we're transitioning between sleep and wakefulness. For example, if you are falling asleep and you're not quite fully asleep and then you're awoken by something, you might remember a dream that you had started to drift into. But more commonly are the dreams that we remember when we wake up in the morning. And uh, sometimes, unfortunately, if they're very pleasant, they're rudely interrupted by the alarm clock. Uh, but regardless, it's the dreams that we remember when we're transitioning between wakefulness and sleep. So in the morning, you're waking up from being asleep, those are the dreams that we remember most often. Apparently, the researchers think that high dream recallers have more active uh, brain regions uh, that are information processing hubs, and therefore, with these more active brains, they have more of these periods of wakefulness during the night, and therefore, that's why they remember more of their dreams. Now... <clears throat> This next article, I think, is potentially more interesting. Why people forget dreams and how you can remember them. And uh, it actually may give uh, us some, some hints and tips at how to better remember dreams. But <clears throat> uh, there are many things that can wake us up from dreams. Uh, a sudden fall a loud noise, an ominous-looking character, chances are that in those few seconds afterwards, you'll be able to remember your dream. But if you fall asleep again, and it's, it's forgotten, unless you've taken notes. And very little is understood about why we dream, but researchers have discovered the parts of the brain responsible for remembering dreams and why some people don't. Okay, well, let's take another commercial break. We'll go over that in detail when we come back. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back after this break. 
Have you heard of quantitative fluid analysis? Commonly called QFA, this test assesses your body at a cellular level and gives insight into your illness. Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center offers the QFA, an FDA-approved test that can often provide early diagnosis of conditions before they can be detected with other tests. Dr. Elena George believes in an integrative approach to medicine. She believes in treating the problem and not the symptom. Following a review of your results, Dr. George will suggest treatment approaches such as nutritional counseling and or the use of pharmaceutical-grade enzymes and nutritional supplements. Surgery and prescription medication will be recommended only when necessary. Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center is located in Atlanta at 1776 Peachtree Road Northwest in Suite 260 North Tower, two blocks south of Piedmont Hospital. They are open Monday through Friday, 8.30 a.m. until 4 p.m. Additional details are available at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. Call their office at 404-591-9100 to make an appointment and mention that you heard this ad on Radio Sandy Springs and get 10% off of QFA testing. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Come on, follow Snipples to Atlanta's go-to center for breathing easy. Do you suffer from chronic sinus headaches, recurrent sinusitis, facial pain or pressure, and chronic congestion? Well, balloon sinuplasty just could be the cure you're looking for. Follow me and breathe easy. Follow Sniffles.com. We treat the problem, not the symptom. Chronic sinus symptoms, gone. This could be the cure you're looking for. Follow me and breathe easy. This proven in-office procedure can have you breathing easy, back to work the next day, and it's done under local anesthesia. Get lasting relief, a quick recovery, and start breathing easy again. Follow me and breathe easy. Follow sniffles.com. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Day, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio. I want to remind you any questions about mental health related issues, send me those via email or any comments about the show. Uh, the email address for me, Dr. Scott, that's D R S C O T at RadioSandySprings.com. That's R-A-D-I-O-S-A-N-D-Y-S-P-R-I-N-G-S dot com. We're talking about why people forget their dreams and how you may be better able to remember them. Now, remember from the other study we talked about, there were the researchers who had found people are more likely to remember their dreams, the high dream recallers, who had twice as many moments of wakefulness, were more reactive to auditory stimuli during sleep than those who rarely remembered their dreams, the low dream recallers. And the researchers found the dreamers' higher levels of brain activity could lead to an easier time remembering what happened. But they went a step further, looking for dream-related regions of the brain 
that activated during sleep and wakefulness in both groups, the high and low dream recallers. And using positron emission tomography or PET scanning to look at the activity in the brains of the subjects, researchers found that the high dream recallers, again, they had an average of remembering dreams about five mornings per week, they showed stronger spontaneous activity in two regions of the brain. And this, uh, the first area, like we talked about before, the medial front prefrontal cortex, it makes associations between context, locations, events, and adaptive responses like emotions. And then the temporal parietal junction, the other area, is responsible for imitation, forming pictures of oneself, and other people in the brain. Therefore, the two areas together could not only help in creating dreams, but also remembering them. And this may explain why these high dream recallers are more reactive to environmental stimuli, awaken more during sleep, and thus better encode dreams in memory than the low dream recallers. Now, Although some people may lament the fact that they can't ever remember their dreams, there are methods that might be able to help, and many of them involve training your brain to remember and recreate scenes, activities both of the aforementioned brain parts are good for. Now, this first one, although dreams may seem scattered, in between the jumps, there is detail and some kind of chronology. We can train our brains to remember these details when we awaken by recreating the scene in real life. It's a technique called the window treatment. Now, what you do is, for five minutes, watch whatever scenes unfold outside of a window. Observe everything. Colors, objects, buildings, cards, people, animals, and movements. Everything from what someone looks like to the colors of their shoes to the speed that they are walking. If there are animals, pay attention to whether they are butterflies or moths, for example, or the specific breed of a dog. If a car is driving down the street, what kind of car is it? Are there any embellishments on it? The goal is to detail in your head exactly what you're seeing. Do not generalize. Once you've done this, write everything down in a notebook. By experiencing the events and recounting them, you're training your brain to remember details in real life. And this will eventually enable you to be better able to remember your dreams as well and and that's pretty much how it works you get used to the idea of picking out and recalling details in the waking state and this eventually translates into your being better able to recalling details from dreams the other suggestion is waking naturally like we talked about before when the alarm clocks wake us up they're more likely than not to jolt us out of bed. Like splashing water all over our REM sleep, 
when our dreams are most likely to happen, they quickly snap us out of our dreams. And how are you going to remember them well after a jolt like that? Waking up naturally is a much smoother transition between dream sleeping and wakefulness. And chances are that dreams could be more easily remembered this way. Even taking an extended nap can improve a person's chances of remembering. Well, that may be a useful technique, but I don't know many of us that are going to give up the idea of having that alarm clock or clock radio as kind of a safety or security to make sure that we don't oversleep and wind up being late to work. <clears throat> it certainly is a, a minority, um, the, the people who can wake up on their own uh, on time on a regular basis without an alarm clock. Then there's the dream journal. If you're serious about remembering your dreams and even getting into a more advanced stage of dreaming called lucid dreams, a dream journal may be effective. This technique is similar to the window treatment technique, although it's done in fragments, by recording any sliver of information you remember from a dream. Rather than waiting for the morning to write in the journal, keep it close to you at night. Put the paper and, and pen right there at the bedside table. And as soon as you wake up from a dream, write down whatever you can remember. Again, all the details, like you would with the window treatment. If you don't want to write everything down, take notes of key points. Soon enough, dreams should start to become more vivid, and remembering them should be easier as well. The article doesn't mention this, but... Uh, I would think combining the window treatment technique uh, with the dream journaling uh, should uh, bring about even better results. So there you have it. For those of you who may be low dream recallers, again, defined as barely remembering two dreams a month, now you have some concrete techniques uh, that are suggested that may help you to better be able to remember your dreams which hopefully will be memorable and pleasant. <clears throat> All right, now, next up on tonight's show, the quality of your marriage may influence your risk of having a heart attack. Ambivalent hearts may be at higher risk for heart disease, according to a new study of married couples with mixed feelings for one another. The most intriguing finding was that within a couple, only if both of them felt ambivalent towards their partner did you see this elevated risk of heart disease. The health of both spouses is interdependent, it turns out. It isn't what one says or does, it's what both do within the relationship that matters when it comes to heart health. Now, I can hear some people saying, hey, look, you know, I can think of couples where they were just both completely in love and devoted to each other and never shared a crossword whatsoever, and yet one of them died of a heart attack. Well, of course, uh, there are certainly exceptions here, uh, but this is an association that was found 
So let's uh, keep looking at, at what they found and, and, and see what points there are. Now, past research has looked at the health effects of either positive or negative feelings within couples. <clears throat> this uh, research, by the way, comes to us from the journal Psychological Science. The reality of most relationships is more often mixed. To see what effect these feelings might have on the heart itself over time, scientists recruited 136 long-married couples. Their average age was 63, and average marriage length was 36 years. The participants answered questionnaires to gauge their feelings about their spouse. Each person had to rate, for example, how helpful or upsetting their spouse was during times when they needed support, advice, or a favor. And the researchers translated the answers into positivity and negativity scores. Based on those categories, 30% of individuals were primarily viewed by their spouses as positive, and 70% were primarily viewed with an even mix of positive and negative feelings, which the researchers termed ambivalent. The scientists also measured participants' heart disease risk by using imaging to estimate the extent of the buildup of calcium in the walls of the arteries of the heart. This is commonly known as a cardiac score test. Perhaps some of you listening to the show have had this test done yourself. It's basically a sophisticated type of CAT scan of the heart, and there is a correlation between calcium buildup, which shows up on the scan in the arteries that supply blood to the heart, and the buildup of plaque and therefore risk of heart attack. Cholesterol and blood sugar levels also risk factors for heart attack, and lifestyle factors like the exercise or the lack thereof and smoking were taken into account to further evaluate risk of heart disease. And they found that among couples where both spouses felt ambivalent toward the other, there was significantly more calcium buildup in the arteries, and only in those couples was the increased heart risk detected. An interesting correlation between how a couple feel about each other and a direct physical effect on their body, affecting a risk of a major disease like a heart attack. The other lifestyle and health measures did not explain the differences seen in the arteries. So, for example, although one partner's health habits, such as exercising regularly, can influence the other for good or ill, these factors did not account for the difference in heart disease risk seen in the participants. Feeling both positively and negatively toward a spouse may affect heart disease risk in large part as a result of the level of support that spouses offer based on relationship quality. Interesting. We have to take another commercial break here. We'll get back to the results of this research and more. We continue on America's Web Radio with Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. PrivateHealthCareExchanges.com 
Have you checked out the only online guide where employers, health plans, brokers, and consultants can navigate private exchange and defined contribution markets? Browse PrivateHealthCareExchanges.com today. The emergence of private health insurance exchanges represents perhaps the most significant shift in how Americans purchase health benefits in years. As employers move their employee population into private exchanges, this trend is on a growth projection into the 2015 benefit year and beyond, according to research published by Allegis Technologies. Visit PrivateHealthCareExchanges.com today to browse our national searchable directory and for Healthcare Exchange Solutions magazine and newsletter. Be sure to submit your listing for inclusion in this groundbreaking guide at www.PrivateHealthCareExchanges.com. That's www.PrivateHealthCareExchanges.com. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. You're listening to America webradio.com the pioneer and leader in chat radio thank you for listening welcome back to psychiatry today with dr scott dr scott bay your psychiatrist with you on america's web radio bringing you all the latest mental health related news and we're talking about how the quality of a marital relationship can actually influence the risk of heart disease uh, between both spouses now these effects likely, likely hold true in any close relationship, not just among couples like these in the study who were uh, very uh, long-term married couples, not even necessarily among romantic partners. But in a close relationship, such as marriage, you spend lots of time with that person, interacting with them and making assumptions about them. In a relationship where there is a fair degree of, amb- of ambivalence, you are less likely to approach that person to get support. And if your partner feels ambivalent towards you, they are less likely to ask for help. It's not just receiving assistance that's good for mental health. Offering others emotional support has also been shown to offer psychological benefits. But when one tries to support a spouse, one isn't even sure that one likes. The gesture may not be as beneficial for either person. In an ambivalent relationship, couples don't benefit from support because they don't seek it as often. And when they do, they get poor support, which aggravates the stress of whatever they are going through. Hmm certain uh, sobering finding. Okay, now, sticking with the theme of health risks um, due to, uh, or not due to, but health risks as part of marital relationships, here is another study that shows that the loss of one's partner 
is tied to more heart attacks and strokes. Older men and women whose partners died within the past month are at an increased risk of heart attacks and strokes. This according to a new study from the UK. Researchers found the chance of having a heart attack or stroke doubled within the 30 days after people lost their significant other. The period after death of a loved one is a time of increased vulnerability to a range of health problems, including heart attacks and strokes. It is important that doctors, family, and friends understand this risk and offer help and support to bereaved individuals. Although we know that the chance of dying of a heart attack or stroke increases after losing someone close, there had been less information on the overall effect of bereavement on heart attacks and strokes, including those that aren't fatal. Researchers analyzed the records of patients seen at 401 UK primary care offices between February 2005 and September of 2012. They compared information on 30,477 people between the ages of 60 and 89 who lost their significant other during that time and a much larger group, 83,588 people who were otherwise similar but did not lose a partner. So that would be the control group. Researchers found that within 30 days of their partner's deaths, 0.16% of the bereaved group had a heart attack or stroke. That doesn't sound like very much, but that's twice the other group, the non-bereaved group, had 0. Point, I'm sorry, 0.08%. Let me say that again. 0.08% of the non-bereaved group had a heart attack or stroke over the equivalent period. So uh, that is a significant difference. The risk of blood clots in the lungs, known as a pulmonary embolus, and severe and sudden blockages in the heart's arteries also were increased after a partner's death. Any extra risks appeared to dissipate after 30 days, which is very interesting. Now, uh, the research was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association Internal Medicine. We think it is important that doctors, friends, and family are aware of this risk so that they can ensure care is as good as possible at a time of increased vulnerability before and after loss of a loved one, according to the study's lead author. This can include making sure that bereaved individuals continue with their regular prescribed medication, that they attend health checks with their doctor or nurse as usual, and they report any new health problems. The increased risks after a partner's death seem to eventually disappear. Again, the first 30 days are the critical period. Doctors could simply encourage the bereaved person to have more interactions with friends and family if necessary, 
They might suggest counseling or psychotherapy or, yes, prescribe antidepressants and also pay close attention to sleep disturbance. It is important to understand that bereavement is a time when people are vulnerable to a range of physical and mental health problems, not just heart attacks and strokes. Good support and care at this time is likely to be helpful. Self-care is likely to deteriorate markedly during the acute phase of bereavement in the first month, and uh, so it's not hard to see how this can increase someone's vulnerability to very severe health problems. I think this research is very important because we already know that the risk of mortality goes up considerably in the first, say, 12 to 18 months after someone loses their spouse. But what this study does is tells us that there's an especially critical period of the first 30 days for heart attack and stroke. Uh, So I think really there's a potential that um, if doctors pay more attention to this period, uh, not just psychiatrists but primary care physicians as well, Uh, that potentially uh, more people would survive uh, the initial uh, acute severe period of the loss of their spouse. Let's turn our attention to mental health issues uh, affecting children. A new study shows that family conflicts can impair a child's brain development. Exposure to common family problems early in life can impair a child's brain development, tension between parents, arguments, a lack of affection or communication between family members can affect growth of an area of the brain called the cerebellum, which is an area involved in skill learning, stress regulation, and sensory motor control. This might lead to mental health problems for children later in life. The findings are important because exposure to adversities in childhood and adolescence are the biggest risk factor for psychiatric disease later in life. Previous studies have focused on the effects of severe abuse and neglect, but this study found common and ongoing family problems can also cause psychiatric ills in young people. Using brain imaging technology, researchers examined the brains of 58 teenagers between 17 and 19 years old. The teens' parents were asked to report any negative events their children had experienced between birth and age 11. Nearly half of the children were classified as having been exposed to childhood family problems. 27 of them. When the teens were 14 and 17, they were also asked about any troubles they, their friends, or their family faced over the course of the past year. The study was published recently in NeuroImage Clinical. It found that the teens who faced mild to moderate family troubles from the time they were born until age 11 had a smaller cerebellum. 
And this is found in just about all cases of mental illness, that the cerebellum is smaller than normal. The teens who faced family problems early in life were more likely to have a diagnosed mental illness, have a parent with a mental health disorder, and to have negative views of their family life. So exposure in childhood and early adolescence to even mild to moderate family difficulties, not just severe forms of abuse, neglect, and maltreatment, may affect the developing adolescent brain with consequences later in life. This smaller cerebellum may be an indicator of mental health issues later on. Reducing exposure to adverse social environments during early life may enhance typical brain development and reduce subsequent mental health risks. Researchers also found that teens who reported negative life events at age 14 had increases in certain areas of the brain. This could indicate that mild stress faced later during development could protect teens and help them cope with more troubles later in life. They noted the level of stress and when it occurs could play an important role in this happens. Now, it is important to point out, as always, the study only shows an association between family troubles and teens' brain size, not a direct cause and effect relationship. Nonetheless, I think the study findings are quite provocative. Uh, the fact that family strife and stress could literally affect brain development with uh, adverse consequences later in life for developing psychiatric illness uh, certainly is quite uh, provocative and disturbing to some degree. But again, uh, I think this finding would have to be further refined uh, to make more definite conclusions and, and justify uh, some sort of intervention to try to alleviate it. Well, that's going to wrap up tonight's show, folks. Uh, I hope that you found the information that I enjoyed bringing to you interesting and informative, and I hope that until we get together again next week, you have a wonderful, stress-free week. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening.